1990, Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic went to a hardcore gig where they saw a band called Scream. The drummer of Scream was really impressive, playing his heart out in front of the crowd, and when Scream disbanded, the drummer contacted the pair and asked if he could join their band. And just like that, Dave Grohl packed his bags and moved to Seattle to join what would become the biggest band on earth. Nirvana had just come off their mildly successful debut, Bleach, which was recorded in 1989 for $600. They weren't living a glamorous lifestyle. Grohl slept in a sleeping bag on Cobain's couch, and his diet mainly consisted of deep-fried food from the gas station across the street. And during that freezing Washington winter, they recorded demos for their next album on an old boombox. Cobain wanted to call it Sheep, an inside joke directed towards people he expected to buy the album. But eventually he grew tired of the title, and in one word summarised the angst and the apathy, the rage and the reluctance of his entire generation. It was as if, in one voice, Generation X, a generation who had been overlooked, ignored, condescended to, turned to the world and said, never mind. As Butch Vig said, September 1991 was really the death of the 1980s. Nevermind released on September 24th, 1991, and is widely considered one of the best albums of all time. Against all expectations, it destroyed the charts, knocking Michael Jackson off the top spot, selling hundreds of thousands of copies a week. To date, Nevermind has sold over 30 million copies. But its commercial impact pales in comparison to its cultural legacy. Nevermind ushered in a new age of alternative grunge music that blew hair metal and pop music off the airwaves. It defined the decade as a whole and remains enshrined as a testament to the power of rock music. Which is why it's easy to forget what was happening across the Atlantic Ocean that week. Primal Scream released their successful third studio album, Screamadelica, to much acclaim and praise just one day earlier. How different were the UK and US music scenes in September of 1991? How does the birth of grunge relate to the birth of Acid House? And just what drugs were these two bands doing that resulted in such different albums? We're gonna find out. Welcome to When Albums Collide. Welcome to When Albums Collide again. We're finally back after taking a week off, and I'm joined by my co-host Pedro Duran. Pedro, uh, how was your week off? Excellent. A nice week off was um, quite the refresher, I think, that uh, that everyone needed. Because that was our yeah, that was our six month mark. Can you believe it? We've been doing this yes. podcast for six months. So here's to another six months before we eventually have another mental breakdown yes exactly i i was thinking this morning if um if this was a a 90s tv show um the opener of this episode would be the boys are back in town in that song (laughs) it's not bad (laughs) yeah exactly that's gonna be our new theme yeah Yeah. Yeah, so Pedro, when we were coming back, I knew we had to come back with a bang. And there's no bigger way to do it than with these albums that have been in my, you know, sort of rearview mirror for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this particular day is crazy for music. So what we're, we're currently doing 
Nirvana's Nevermind. It's mm-hmm. a very famous album. And Screamadelica, Primal Scream. They came out one day apart. Mm. But on the 24th of September, 1991, the following albums came out. Nirvana's Nevermind, Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger. Yes. A Tribe Called Quest's A Low End Theory. Yeah. I mean, there were so many albums coming out on this exact day. So we had a choice of what we wanted to do. And I thought, well... I want to do Tribe Called Quest, but, you know, a, a rap album and a grunge album might not yeah. work. And we've already done Red Hot Chili Peppers, so I thought, oh, That's right. Screamadelica, that might be fun. And it's something in the UK, so we can find out what's happening in the UK while Nevermind is taking over the world via the US. Um, so I'm going to throw it to you, Pedro. What do you know about Nevermind? What do you know about Screamadelica? Oh, I mean, as far as Nevermind, man, and, and Nirvana, I mean, I'm... Um I am a 90s kid. You're a 90s bitch. Yeah. Yes, exactly, as that as that famous song would go. But yeah, I grew up in the 90s, so Nirvana, and particularly this album, if if you were cognitive in the 90s, I don't care. You've heard this album. Like, this was, <laughs> bro, this was everywhere. This was of the 90s as much as of um, OJ riding in that white Bronco, as much as Bill Clinton getting a blowjob from... Um, <laughs> non-paid intern i think this this album is so definitive of the time i mean i've heard this album so many times growing up one thing i kept putting in my notes is that it's ever present it's hard to think of a time where uh never mind and nirvana and i don't know a song like smells like team spirit did not exist um because it's just uh, cemented in in pop culture as far as screamadelic I've never heard of them before until this week. So um, when we were going through these albums as to what to compare and things, uh, even with the name Primal Scream and... Right, like I, I tell you we're listening to a Primal Scream album and what were you thinking before you listened? You're like, oh, it's going to be some like heavy metal type thing, right? Definitely. I would definitely, definitely. I thought it was like, I thought we were doing the, the battle of the bands that are just going to be screaming my, my eardrums out this week. So then I started listening to the album, and I'm like, oh, this is not anything that I expected (laughs) at all. It's a lot more chilled out. I would kind of argue that Screamadelica is almost the anti-Nevermind. It almost might be, which is, I mean, for a lot of reasons that we're going to go into. Um, As I mentioned, this is the first album of Nirvana that features the classic lineup of Dave Grohl of Foo Fighters fame, Chris Novoselic, and Kurt Cobain. So this is really their, this is their peak, I think. Even though Bleach is a much rawer album and it's it's a fun album by itself, this is really their, when Nirvana kicked off. Yeah, of course, yeah. Which is odd, Because it is quite a commercial-sounding album. I mean, it sold 30 million copies, so it must be. But even Cobain would go on to say that looking back on the production of Nevermind, he was embarrassed by it. He said it's closer to a Motley Crue record than it is a punk rock record, which is not what he wanted. There were difficulties during recordings, um, you know... Although sessions generally went well, sometimes Cobain would become difficult and he'd be great for an hour and then he'd just sit in a corner and say nothing for an hour. Maybe that was related to some stuff going on in his personal life. We'll get into it. But obviously this came out and it just destroyed the biggest album in the world um, and it transcended a lot of things. They were playing it on rock radio, but they were playing it on mainstream pop radio and they were playing it on college radio. Everyone listened to this album. It was so big. Whereas I think Primal Scream, Screamadelica is a much more niche 
album, despite the fact it sold well over three million uh, copies and it won the first ever Mercury Prize, which is a prestigious uh, prize over in the UK. Before this, if you'd ever listened to Primal Scream before this, it was much more straightforward rock, almost like a proto-grunge kind of music, and it did not review very well at all. Like everyone, all the all the music critics hated Primal Scream because they sucked. Uh, so they decided. Um, to change it up a little bit. And the way this happened was Primal Scream were first introduced to the acid house scene uh, by a friend in 1988, and they were at first sceptical. Lead singer Bobby Gillespie said, I always remember being quite fascinated by it, but not quite getting it. The band developed a taste for it and began attending raves. Now, did they develop a taste for Acid House or just a taste for Acid? I'm not quite sure, but I would assume they did their first MDMA pill and it you know, opened the door to the wonders of dance music and raves in the UK. Gillespie remembers they would go out to clubs, stay out all night, and then go to the studio straight away. So they were like, oh, still on uppers, still on drugs. They'd come in and start recording Screamadelica. So that's the state of mind they're in, whereas Kurt Cobain heavily into heroin at the time. So this is a, this is a basically the tale of two albums. It's the US versus the UK. It's grunge versus dance music. And it's heroin versus ecstasy. Those are the two experiences we're getting out of these two things. You know, even famously, I think the day after their Saturday Night Live performance, Kurt Cobain overdosed on heroin, which is is crazy to think about. Can you imagine a modern rock star doing that now? It's almost unthinkable. Yeah, it's crazy. So these two are sort of inexorably linked, came out a day apart. I can't wait to dive into them. Mm. Uh, Shall we do it, Pedro? Yeah, let's do it. Let's take it track by track. I mean, I don't think there's anywhere else to kick it off. It's got to be the first track on Nevermind. Smells like Teen Spirit. Holy, holy shit. It's got like a billion views on YouTube. One of the most famous songs, period, of all time. Yes, definitely. Fair, fair to say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, definitely their signature song. Um, it's the least single off the album. Um, and I think with the success of this song um, in the early 90s, it just brought the band to this unrivaled popularity. Cobain did not really appreciate the the fame and the popularity of this record afterwards. So um, uh, I, I'm quite sure that he started taking this song off the live set um, when they started doing shows because he was just so tired of uh, performing it. And It's funny you mention that because he is quoted as saying, I still like playing Teen Spirit, but it's almost an embarrassment to play it. Everyone is focused on that song so much, he said. You know, I get it because I think even now, and I've been actively avoiding the song for about 15 years now, just out of habit, you know, and I think if you put this on at a party, people might be like, oh... Why'd you put this on? It's a bit cringe. But it's a good song. Like, objectively, a great, great song. It's just, culturally, it's been played so much, you know? Cobain said, I was trying to write the ultimate pop song. I was basically trying to rip off the Pixies. I have to admit it. When I heard the Pixies for the first time, I connected with that band so heavily that I should have been in that band, or at least a Pixies cover band. We used their sense of dynamics, being soft and quiet, and then loud and hard, and they basically ripped that. And that's true, you know, I think all across this album... All the verses real quiet, and they come in with the chorus real loud and distorted and jagged. That is very much the Nirvana style, which other bands would go on to ape for, you know, the next 10 years. Definitely. I mean, you can definitely hear the Pixies' influence all throughout the album. And, you know, just reading about Cobain, you can he would bring them up um, again and again. So it's obvious that he was highly, highly influenced by them. 
there, there's a lot that I mean, there, where we start. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, um, did you see where he basically brought up, uh, came up with the name, um, basically Kurt um, and his friend Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill said that that he smelled like Teen Spirit. Uh, and he really didn't know what it what it meant, and he just thought it was a you know funny turn of phrase. But she was actually referring to the, the deodorant brand, which I had to re- actually remember. I was like, there was a deodorant brand called Teen Spirit back in the day. Physical sensation, new Teen Spirit, antiperspirant made for you and your generation. Teen Spirit, a physical sensation with fragrances made for you. Teen Spirit, the harder you play, the harder it works. Teen Spirit, just for teen time. Yeah, she wrote on his wall, Kurt smells like teen spirit. And he's like, oh, man, what a deep poetic thing. But it's like me coming over to your house and writing, you know, Pedro smells like Lynx Africa or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. Why does it got to be Africa? <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, Pedro, <laughs> yeah, Pe- with you. <laughs> Pedro smells like axe. And it's yeah. like, mm, well, what a deep thing. So I, I did look into it. And if anyone, have you have you used Teen Spirit before? I mean, is it no, only I, I, for I, girls? Or? I don't even, I think it might have been like more of a, a brand geared toward females but um like i do remember it growing up but i've never uh yeah i I never used uh, that that brand of deodorant at all because i was gonna say if we have listeners in the u.s can you please either send us a stick of teen spirit or tell us how it smells um because apparently and this is just shows how big the song was when the company was acquired by Colgate Palmolive in 1992, the Teen Spirit brand was said to be the most popular product of its kind in the US and was the favorite of nearly a quarter of all teenage girls. They were all using Teen Spirit, maybe because the year prior, you know, it smells like Teen Spirit had come out and it's a really big, big song. Right now, apparently, the Teen Spirit stick is only offered in two fragrances, which are Pink Crush and Sweet Strawberry, and it's available in either 1.4 or 2.3 ounce sizes. So if anyone wants to ship us over some, I would highly appreciate. It's a, I mean, not that Cobain and the rest of the guys needed, I guess, the money because the album was so successful. But like nowadays, if Kurt was alive and um, and he was more of a opportunist as far as capitalism goes, he definitely would have done some cross promotional. It's no, I see it so because it's so against everything they stand for yeah well that's what i mean like if it was a different type of cobain right like they would totally rake in the money (laughs) no i went there i just wanted to talk about the song a bit i mean the um, just the the breakdown of it and 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 things like technical aspects of it like the the guitar solo i really love the guitar solo um it's interesting because Something like I think about, we did an episode on uh, Guns N' Roses, right? And when you think about guitar solos, you think about like Slash and his famous guitar solos, but he kind of does his own thing and he's kind of like a wild man on the guitar, whereas this guitar solo follows the vocal melody um, instead of doing something else like being harder or a lot more punk or, you know, uh, kind of gearing toward or leaning toward more like speed speed metal or speed rock and i think it's a nice touch and a great decision and also that feedback i think it's at the end of the third verse is amazing it's almost a come down from the song because you have this these riffs this heavy riffs and then you have this distortion that's just kind of what's i mean the way i could really describe it was like it's it's like after you have this immense sweaty intense sex you climax oh my God, Pedro. yeah well you climax and then your body's just buzzing you know and you're having and you're just relieving yourself all the size of relief and stuff that's where that distortion 
felt like to me. You got a bit of that love buzz. Huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I I thought that was that was the best way that I can uh, describe it. Passionate, carnal lovemaking uh, is is how it sounds. I want to move to Primal Scream, Screamadelica, because and I want to get your impressions. Because for the record, I thought you would hate this album. I thought for a fact you would hate this album. So the first track comes on, and if you're expecting heavy metal or grunge or rock, it ain't that. Moving on up, you get a dose straight to the temple of what Screamadelica is all about. It's these smooth major chords right away. It's a retro throwback. It's cheery. It's positive. It's sunshine. It is the opposite of a grimy, grungy bar in Seattle, Washington. Even the album cover was designed by an in-house artist for the record label that took acid and then saw a puddle on the ceiling, and he modelled the the smiley face in the sun. But that's what, it really communicates what the album is about. It's sunshiny almost the whole way through. I will rarely say this on the podcast because I think it's a bullshit statement and good music should transcend this nonsense. Mm-hmm. But you really want to be loaded when you listen to this album. Like, whatever your vice is, like, whether it's Disco Bickies, Devil's Lettuce, some of the Booger Sugar, <laughs> hell, just, just crack open a cold one or enjoy a little bit of the blood of Christ. This is a dance album, it's a party album, and it's based on a drug trip. So you're doing yourself no favors if you're just listening to it sober. At least you got to turn it loud. Because this isn't a dance album. You put it on at a party. It's not an introspective album. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny you said it because um, I wrote that in my notes. Is it's definitely like I said at the top of the show. I didn't know what I was getting into, and then this song's um, opens up, moving on up. I wrote down like, whoa, not what I was expecting. It's definitely an upbeat song. Uh, features a gospel choir and just a lot more it's just super i guess positive i guess i mean the lyrics you have lyrics like moving on up getting out of the darkness so you have things like that and um in regards to uh the sound of the rest of the album yes is i assume it would be uh helpful to be under the influence (laughs) um i've I've, you know, we've talked about it before. I've never done anything um, recreational stimulants or depressants or anything like that. Um, Most is caffeine, and I had a lot of caffeine uh, listening to this album. But the thing about it was I still enjoyed it for Mm. for what it was. Um, I I had fun listening to to this album where... At some, where there's points where where never mind, which is good. I love never mind, but it can it does kind of beat you over the head, yeah, with sure. the um the rawness of it. And I know we're, we're gonna skip around a lot, but it it's these these albums are so interesting because it's like some of the Scream of Delica tracks are just like they're meant to be played at a party or in a club, so they're like seven minute beats, you know, just seven minute dance tracks. Right, and you're like you know you're talking to someone and it's in the background and you're having a good time and everyone's happy. Whereas Nirvana is like a song like Territorial Pissings is like two minutes long and just beats you over the head, right? Yeah. It is short, sharp, to the point. You're not playing it at a party. You're, you know, screaming it in your room alone. Yeah, while you're mad at your stepfather because he took away Thanks your a lot, Super Steve. Nintendo. <laughs> you're not my real dad. So the next song, Nirvana, In Bloom. Like, this comes on. I've just listened to Smells Like Teen Spirit and then In Bloom comes on and I'm like, yeah, fuck, man, this is a great album. <laughs> like, yeah. Just two tracks in. It hasn't lost any of its charm, I don't think, no. since 1991, personally. Um, In Bloom is a song about fair-weather fans that are suddenly turning up to their shows, which is ironic because this album is about to make them the biggest band on the planet. The lyrics go... That's the thing 
guy just comes and he's like a bro and he'll get drunk and party at our shows but he doesn't know what the lyrics really mean and he's not a real fan. Um, which is ironic because, Kurt, you're about to get 100,000 of these people at every single show you do for the next two yeah, years. Yeah, I know. So, so crazy, yeah. Um, this song was released as the album's fourth, and I think the final single, um, like in November 92, and it generated a, a lot of airplay um, in the radio and stuff. And it's interesting because this was never released as a f- physical single. Like, you couldn't just buy the, the, the CD out there, but it was super popular and actually... Um, made it to the um, number five on the U.S. mainstream rock charts. Now, get that, U.S. mainstream rock, you know what I mean? So it's another indication of how popular they were, and I think um, Kurt was right. There was a lot of people that were just listening to the band, not really understanding what they were uh, they were about, which it's, well, it's a couple of things, because they... Uh, just going through, like, they they got a lot of criticism, especially Kurt, got a lot of criticism because there's a lot of times where you don't make out what he's saying, you know, as far as his lyrics and stuff. Yeah, yeah. He I mean, that, I, know, I assume that's by design. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He's slurring, stuff like that. And, I mean, Weird Al Yankovic famously uh, parodied uh, Nirvana. And in the lyrics, he's making fun of Kurt. I thought it was ironic. And flash forward to 2020, there's a viral video. Have you seen this video? I was going to send it to you last night, but I wasn't sure if you were up or anything. But there is a video, and it's a teenage girl. And she's, uh, I think it's her dad or something. He's like, what's the name of this band? It's obviously Nirvana. They're, I think it's. I think it might be In the Bloom or Smells Like Team Spirit. And she's he's playing it, and she's like, I don't know. I don't know. And he zooms in, and she's wearing a fucking Nirvana shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's like it went viral this week. And I, and I think it's because I've been looking up Nirvana stuff, and that, you know, the algorithm's like, hey, suggested this uh, video to me. But I think it's just so... Uh, so uh, ironic, and um, Kurt was a visionary. He knew he knew what was up. Firstly, on that point with the the lyrics, um, he Kurt Cobain is quoted as saying, "Why in the hell do journalists insist on coming up with a second-rate Freudian evaluation of my lyrics when ninety percent of the time they've transcribed them incorrectly?" Like you were saying, this girl has a Nirvana shirt on has no idea about any of their music. It's because they're so they're just like a pop culture item now, right? Yes, exactly. Um, it's just a cool thing to have a Nirvana shirt and just being like, it's like Tupac nowadays. I see a lot of people like with like Tupac shirts or something like that, or 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 you know even what's a better example? The Shea Guerrero shirts that were popular for a while, and people were like, oh, it's just so cool. I'm a rebel, but it's like there's a lot more that guy, goes into it. I think it. this guy was like the lead singer of a band or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. For the next song, "Come As You Are," another huge song, but it, Nirvana is what I would call a gateway band. Am I right in saying that? Because they're so instantly likable because Kurt Cobain was always so focused on melodies, which is what most people can get right away from listening to a song. You know, like it might take a couple of listens to pick up on harmonies or detailed instrumentation, but if you have a good melody and it sticks, you're instantly going to be popular. So come as you are, you know, do, 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 do. It just gets right into your head straight away so anyone can enjoy it and then maybe you're listening to this and you like the melodies so you'll branch off into maybe Pearl Jam or Soundgarden and then you might start listening to Rage Against the Machine or whatever this is your entry point and the modern equivalent I would say which is ironic 
because he's in the band, is, like, Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters are just a really, like, basic, easy-to-enjoy rock band, and then you go to other bands as your gateway from Foo Fighters. Um, that's what I... So I think that Nirvana certainly opened the portal to another side of music for a lot of people when it became mainstream. Yeah, uh, I think that is um, a main reason why they're considered, like, that premier or principal band for the grunge movement. They were, like... Uh, they were the flagship band for the grunge movement because you can listen to them and then go on and to listen to other uh, other bands in, in the genre and be like, okay, I like this and like that. And obviously, with the success of this album... It, uh, the the trend in the music scene shifted, and everyone's getting on the uh, the hard rock grunge sound, especially that Seattle sound. I remember it being called the Seattle sound yes, a long yes. time before it was just before it was labeled grunge. Now, this song "Come As You Are" is actually very similar to a song by Killing Joke called '80s, which is why they were actually reluctant to release this as a single. And the guitarist of Killing Joke, Geordie Walker, was said to be very upset about the whole situation, and he felt that Nirvana uh, handled the matter very poorly, because they denied there was any connection. And the songs, the riffs do sound kind of similar, and they looked into legal litigations, but it was dropped. So, yeah, it, is, it isn't the most original song, maybe, but there's a lot of riffs that sound like this, um, but it's a hell of a song. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, um, it's a, I think it's a classic, even just the phrase, come as you are. It's funny, I was actually hanging out um, with a bunch of people this week, and um, somebody had that tattoo, come as you are, that phrase. And really? Yeah, seriously, it was, it was, it was, was kind of... Was it on their lower back? <laughs> it might have been, Judd. <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> How did I see it? It was on their lower back. That's a tale for another story. <laughs> a tale for another time. Excuse me. Um, yeah, I was just like, oh, it's ironic that um, I'm. I, I see this uh, scribbled on your body, and I'm actually uh, been listening to this album all, all week. So uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, the universe funny. is trying to tell you something. My yes, man. man. I think that's it. Screamadelica continue with Slip Inside This House. So right away, this is a cover of a psychedelic rock band, The 13th Floor Elevators. It was the first track on their 1967 album, Easter Everywhere. So it's like, whoa, second song in, we're doing covers already? What's going on? So even even their product is so different to Nevermind. Nevermind is an artistic work where Kurt Cobain is pouring his heart out to make a personal statement. And he's taking, even if he's taking stuff from Killing Joke and stuff, he's repurposing it. He's not doing covers, he's doing his own thing. Whereas Primal Scream are like, yeah, we're just having a party, man. Oh, I like this song. Let's just cover this song and throw it in. It'll be good vibes. So it's just like, they're making the ultimate party song because they're off their face on ecstasy for most of the time. So they don't really care about artistic statements. They're just having a good time, which continues uh, with this track. It's hard to find a comparison for both these bands today, especially because rock is so much uh, smaller now than it was in 1991. I think there has never been another Nevermind. I don't think... Maybe the closest approximation would be like what the Strokes did for Garage Rock in, in the early 2000s. And for Primal Scream, the equivalent might be someone like... Tame Impala, that sort of mix electronic, psychedelic, and rock, but very hard to compare both these albums to anything uh, modern, and so we, we can't really understand their impact of how big it was to be coming out in 1991 with albums sounding like this, 
we're used to techno now. You know, half the songs on the top 40, you've got Dua Lipa and stuff and Calvin Harris doing EDM songs. But imagine in 1991 how fresh Slip Inside the House would have sounded. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, and that's the thing I've realized, like, listening to 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 this album. You know, I when we listen to um, a lot of these records, I try to place myself in the the year of when uh, the music was released and just kind of think about what was the audience thinking at the time definitely if you're a guy or gal in 1991 and you're listening to this it's it's it sounds so um different and um innovative especially from this band because as you were saying at the top um this isn't necessarily their um the sound that they're known for so this is something um completely new and um i think it was something that um uh, attributed to this uh, the success and the critical acclaim of this album for sure let's take a pause for the cause we'll be back with more when albums collide after this What's up guys, it's Ruby here. You can check out my brand new single Spell along with all my other tracks right now on Spotify or wherever you get your music. Back on the show, When Albums Collide, Judd Boaz with you, also with me, Pedro Duran. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more in depth because we've been dancing around the topic of what these genres are and what these albums mean. The next song on Screamadelica, Don't Fight It, Feel It. Um, first of all, what did you have for, for this song? <laughs> I put in my notes, this sounds like what a bunch of Europeans with no rhythm dance to while they're backpacking through South America. <laughs> oh, that is harsh. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's not like, I don't want to say it's, well, listen, it's not a criticism of the song itself. This is just a scene that it painted in my brain because I could just see it was like, it's like a dance song and it's, yeah, I mean, I actually, I liked it. I, I did like it, but I was just thinking, like uh, I was just like I could just see a bunch of uh, Frenchies just like dancing to this really badly because there's not much like lyrics and it's just like a you know like a rhythm to it and it's like just dance music and they're dancing with it their glow just sticks. makes you think of Eurotrash <laughs> basically yeah <clears throat> in, in a foreign country dancing um, the only thing is like I thought the song goes on way too long in my opinion but then I realized a lot of the songs on the album are, are just they are longer um, especially compared to Nevermind because well, Nevermind there's more there because he's singing he's putting lyrics and he's kind of clever with his wordplay whereas this album um, it just focuses on focuses on the instrumental of the song of the uh, of the music um, and it is meant to be kind of just more of a you know dance record in general so I understand why it's a little bit longer because you, you can add more breaks you can add a little more different instruments I think one time there's a saxophone in there. Yeah, that's that's the the vibe that I got. Very gospel again. I thought this is former hypnotone vocalist Denise Johnston, and they had all these guest vocalists come on, the gospel singers, and they'd join their entourage and they'd go out on tour and just get destroyed on drugs together and and do these songs. 
But let's talk a little bit about house music and, and acid house and where the inspiration for this album came from. It originated in the mid-80s in Chicago, which produced a very famous electronic house music scene. The lyrics to all these songs are uplifting, positive things, doesn't matter if you're black or white or Latino or gay or trans, whatever, that's, that's very house music, very uplifting. Larry Heard, aka Mr. Fingers, who's a very famous DJ, claims the term house came from DJs creating music in home studios using affordable synthesizers and drum machines, such as the Roland TB303, 808, 909. And these synthesizers were used to create the acid house subgenre and have a squelchy sound, is what he would call it. Case in point, the track Acid Tracks by Future. So the first major success of house music outside the US is considered to be Farley Jackmaster Funk's Love Can't Turn Around, which peaked at number 10 on the UK singles chart in 1986. And around that time, all the UK record labels started releasing all this house music and it became really popular in the UK, maybe more popular in the UK than it was in the US, which is crazy. Um, And the UK became one of the hotspots for techno music, acid house, and they experienced uh, the so-called second summer of love between 1988 and 1989. What was this triggered by? Doing a lot of ecstasy. There's this new drug on the market, Pedro, that everyone's taking at these illegal raves and parties, and it just makes you really happy, and it makes music sound really good, and unlike alcohol, no one wants to fight or anything on it. You just, like, you'll see someone, and you'll look really mean, and you'll just go up and give them a cuddle and become best friends, because you're on drugs together. So that is the scene in which this music is being played and made for, and this band is on the drugs hard. Um, so that is the sort of environment that the music is, and that's what it suits. But I would think if I put on Don't Fight It, Feel It, just in the background of a party and people are having drinks and having a chat, I think it would work quite well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, like, it's not a bad song. I just um, thought that was a scene. It's very, it's a song that definitely breeds social interaction, Um, whether it be a bunch of people high, sitting on, you know, inflatable couches, talking and having a chat, or worse, a bunch of um, Brits just dancing badly. And this, remember, this is this is the 90s, so they have glow sticks as well, twirling them around and um, trying to, uh, you know, all sleep with each other. So let's look at the flip side of this. So the next song on Nevermind is Breed, and it's as good a time as any to talk about grunge music. Grunge is basically just a fancy marketing term for indie rock music that was coming out of Seattle, Washington in the mid to late 80s. Musically, it built off punk and metal acts like the Melvins and Black Flag and a little bit of indie rock with Sonic Youth uh, mixed in there. A particular record label called Sub Pop saw the opportunity to make this cool alternative thing and market it and run with it. And as a matter of fact, Becca Flynn, one of the good people at Sub Pop, they still send me singles every week in my in my email from when I was working in radio. Oh, so they really? know a thing or two about marketing. It is a marketing term. It was like Suits saw this cool thing young people were doing and decided to market it and sell it. And for his part, Cobain loathed the word grunge and despised the scene that was developing, feeling that these record companies like Sub Pop were just signing these old cock rock bands, which we've covered before, your ACDCs, your Guns N' Roses, your Twisted Sisters, and they were pretending to be grunge and pretending to be from Seattle and signing all these essentially 
hair metal bands and pretending to be grunge. Mm. So even bands, you got bands like Soundgarden, like Pearl Jam, like Alice in Chains, despite being atypical grunge bands, they also rejected the label. They were just like, no, we're rock and roll bands. We don't want this label of grunge or whatever. It's just suits trying to tell these bands what they are and then lumping them all in a nice little category to sell to people. But in essence, it's a punk rejection of mainstream rock that we've covered previously on the show. Um, so let's talk about the guitar solos. You mentioned it earlier. For, there aren't guitar solos that are these big wanky show-off things like in Van Halen or Guns right. N' Roses. They're concerned about the song, so every guitar solo will fit the melody of the song. Mm-hmm. No keyboards, no synthesizers, absolutely not. It's all DIY, yeah. it's a gritty sound. You don't have these expensive pieces of equipment. There's no huge drum kits either. It's not like you know in Van Halen where he's got a double kick and 14 drums. Dave Grohl just uses a simple kit, very restrained, and uh, he just goes crazy on the drums. Lyrically, in sharp contrast to the cock rock where it's all about sex and partying, uh, you get very socially conscious, dark lyrics that are very introspective. Um, So all very stripped back from what we were listening to just a couple of years ago with Guns N' Roses and Van Halen. What did you think of Breed and, and what do you think of grunge in general? Yeah, uh, with Breed, yeah, I, 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 I did like the song. Uh, the message is um, uh, pretty dope and um, pretty crazy, and for me, really relatable. I mean, lyrically, the song addresses themes of teenage apathy and the fear within the American middle class. Kurt famously uh, described the song as, you know, getting into middle America, marrying at 18, getting pregnant, stuck with a baby, and not wanting it. So it's um, very much a, a rejection of that, you know, I guess, white picket fence kind of thing that um, seems pretty socially acceptable to to people. I mean, and the lyrics deal with it a lot, even though the way he sings in, the way he gets it across um, really cements it. So, I mean, the lyrics are just basically, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care if it's old, I don't care, I don't mind, I don't mind, I don't mind. Don't have a mind. Get away, get away, get away, get away. Away from your home. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. But when you listen to the song, like, he has so much passion and he's he's screaming his, his lungs out. Um, and, you, and you definitely feel, feel yeah, you're definitely feeling um, his rejection of, of those norms. And, and as far as grunge, yeah, I mean, the popularity of grunge is because, and we like we said, like you said, we talked about it in past episodes, in the 80s, glam metal that cock rock was massive and you know you have rock bands that literally putting hairspray in their hair and putting on makeup like twisted sister or something like that and they're wearing tight clothes and they're just like really pretty androgynous guys and now what's what's going to happen they have the contrast now where grunge is it's just dirty grimy the imagery is is very much um bleak um, we didn't mention it before, but like, like, like the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit just seems like, just looks dirty as hell, you know? Um, um, uh, so I think that's a, a, a massive, um, aspect of that. People were just coming off of the eighties. They wanted to do something different and it was the natural, uh, progression of that. Just the absolute rejection of, um, that, uh, glam and the access of the of the 1980s uh, the next the next period of both these albums wildly diverge and i've never done her- heroin to my knowledge i've never done any <laughs> opiates so i can't speak to that experience but i would say the next songs on screamadelica are very atypical of what they're going for where the drug trip has a peak 
And so the first couple songs, they were moving on up. They were coming up. They were literally, the, the drug was coming up and through their bloodstream. Now we're sort of at the peak, and these are the apex party tracks of the album. So a song like, I mean, it's called Higher Than The Sun, so not very subtle, I will say that. But I was really into the vocals on this one. At a party, I thought this would be absolutely killer. At the time, the the band had been doing so many drugs that they were sort of beginning to spiral. They said there was a whole summer the following year in 1992 where we'd open the studio at 2 o'clock and shut it at 6 and no one would have turned up to do any work. People used to turn up to score drugs and then would just leave. Their ecstasy was becoming shit by 91, 92. People started to cut it with horrible things and that's what turned us all into cokeheads, they said. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, blame someone else for it. Yeah. Um, It started as this really pure thing and you were getting pure drugs that weren't really hurting you. And then they start cutting it with speed and meth and all this other stuff, and it, and it becomes quite dark and awful. But this is really the, the, the peak of the album, of the scene, and it represents that Higher Than The Sun I thought was a wonderful song. Yeah, I really did like um, Higher Than The Sun. Very psychedelic. That's the best way I could say it's a super psychedelic song. I, I like this one, particularly after coming off of a track like uh, Don't Fight It, Feel It, for the aforementioned reasons, um, I found it to be a lot more relaxed and um, and tranquil. But I definitely definitely like this song and one of uh, the standout tracks for me. This is the peak of the trip for them. So then you have In a Flight, which is an instrumental, and apparently they were they they put it together when they were recording In a Flight. Their keyboardist Martin Duffy came in tripping on acid and jumped up on the mixing desk and was shouting, "I'm pissing! I'm pissing in the sky!" Obviously, it's a wild recording session. Uh, but there is a big Beach Boy vibe to Inner Flight as well, the harmonies especially, and they said Pet Sounds really influenced them. Mm. Very Beach Boys vibe with the with the harmonies coming through. I thought it was really lovely. And then Come Together. There's a speech all throughout by Jesse Jackson yeah. uh, in 1972 at the Wattstacks concert, which has... Uh, it's a really famous concert that has a really good documentary about it. I recommend it to everyone. But it's this is so much less commercial than Nevermind. Like, I know Nevermind has this, like, reputation of being alternative, but it's still so poppy. Whereas a pure dance track like this, with a Jesse Jackson speech over the top of it, you're never gonna you're never gonna hear this on the radio. Something like come together. No, for sure. Yeah, and and you and you do have a a, a, a solid point there. Like when you think of Nirvana. On a very shallow aspect, you just think of, and even the term grunge, grunge music, it just sounds grimy, it sounds harder, harsher and stuff. But if you actually listen to the album, Nirvana, uh, never mind, like, it does have pop sensibilities to it. Like, there's harmonies and there's melodies and they're, they're catchy tunes. Like, I'm sorry, even though it's super harsh, and I think that's what makes it super successful, you, you have these really hard rock sounds hard rock guitars and and everything but it's uh, i mean it, they're pop songs disguised as like really grimy songs whereas inner flight or come together they're not they're not that at all um like i've said before i feel like this album's almost the the anti or the antithesis of of uh, uh never mind yeah i honestly agree with that because even bobby Gillespie, lead singer would go on to say he honestly felt they were redeeming rock and roll with this album he said i know it sounds ridiculous right but my attitude was that rock and roll should be a celebratory euphoric ecstatic experience high energy i felt that rock had become too inward and maybe it was a bit too serious 
I felt that what we were doing at this point was what rock and roll should be, except modern and it was futuristic. So it's he's pretty much targeting right at bands like Nirvana that are taking it real serious, going very inward and all sad. He's like, no, rock and roll is not supposed to be like this. Rock and roll is supposed to be a celebration. Right. Yeah. And that's and that's a very interesting uh, point that you bring up inward in regards to outward. Like when you're listening to this album, um, you imagine it's for a group of people partying, dancing, and things like that. Like, Inner Flight, I wrote down, it's like, it's a psychedelic gem. Like, this is something that you're using some party drugs, pop a pill or whatever, and you just go out and you're just jamming and you're dancing and you're enjoying yourself. You maybe hook up with somebody and wake up in the morning, you regret it, but you do it all over again. And, you know, like, it's 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 like a, like a party jam. Um, come together as well. I really like how the organ starts to build up. Choir comes in and they're singing, like, come together as one, come together as one. I mean, even that uh, statement, you would be speaking to a bunch of people, right? And, and asking them to, you know, come together as one or one unit and dance and all these things. So it's, it, 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 it's meant for a group of people to listen to and and enjoy whereas um never mind you you're particularly songs poly or um uh, something in the way that's definitely inward you're just like sitting in your room <laughs> you know rocking back and forth just thinking about depression <laughs> let's get into that because the next song lithium which is named after you know like uh, something that was used as an antidepressant um, so very fair. and this is one of my favorite songs maybe lithium by nirvana just the very manic depressive nature of the song where it's quiet it's slow um, and then it gets really loud. It's very uh, iconic. So you have that, which I think is a lithium's a wonderful song. And then, as you mentioned, Polly. So let, I'm going to do this delicately, as delicately as I can. Polly is about the actual kidnapping of a 14-year-old girl in 1987 when she was returning home from a concert in Tacoma, Washington. She was abducted by a man who took her back to his mobile home and sexually assaulted her. And he tortured her and all, and all this horrible stuff. And then when they went to a gas station together, she managed to escape. So this this is, uh, I think Kurt Cobain read this story and thought it was horrific, obviously, and then wrote this song about it. And Nirvana would go on to play some benefits to help rape victims, including the Rock Against Rape concert in 1993, which raised money for women's self-defense organizations. It is a very heavy song when you know the topic of it, uh, talking about like a, a teenage girl being assaulted. But I think a song like this only adds to the allure of the band especially to to a young teenage audience, to be singing this quite soft, gentle song about a graphic, horrific topic. It's very edgy, but it's challenging all the saccharine shit you you would get on the radio from, like, you know, Bon Jovi and Van Halen and Journey and all that stuff. It's so different, you couldn't help but fall in love with it. And I remember when this song came out, I remember um, the media um, giving them so much heat because... The idea that they were trying to argue was that uh, Nirvana was glamorizing this um, horrific crime. I mean, if you know anything about Cobain and the band and and his actions, as you just said, he's definitely, definitely not about glorifying, you know, violence toward women or or anyone at all. And it's um it's super interesting that they were able to um to uh, do a song like this, and I think it's um indication of a really good art that. They were able to, take, able to do this narrative and make people feel really uncomfortable with themselves to uh, to the point that they were able to generate that type of um, backlash, you know? It's funny because we're looking at their impact, sort of, of bringing these serious topics to light and, and Screamadelica doing the opposite. Um, 
the next song, Screamadelica, loaded with the sample from Roger Corman's The Wild Angels. This is actually a remix of one of their earlier songs, I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have. And if you listen to the two side by side, you can actually hear the influence that the rave scene and the drugs have had on them, because they've just sampled an old song they did, which was a rock song, and turned it into a dance song. What's interesting, they talk about their impact of what their old shows used to be like and their new shows were like. They're quoted as saying, You went from being out at some indie club where some drunken idiot would start trying to pick a fight with you to this incredible new sounding music and beautiful girls and everyone being friendly. So they're being real positive about their music and seeing it as a positive thing that they are doing with their music, whereas Nirvana's doing the opposite. The next song on Nirvana's album, Territorial Pissings, it's almost mocking of baby boomers at the start. Okay, yeah. Like, they, they have the opening, it's like a, a song by the Youngbloods that Chris Novosuk, he sings kind of mockingly, he says like... Come on! Which is such a sarcastic thing to say, coming off your last song, Polly, which was so horrific, and Mm. now you're talking about, like, we should all love each other even though these horrible things are happening in the world. Very uh, direct, very intentional placement in the album. But it's basically, this song is telling all those hippies and all those baby boomers to fuck right off, Mm. which is the opposite of what Screamadelica's saying. Screamadelica's like, yeah, let's all love each other, and Nirvana's saying... No, absolutely not. Chris Novoselic is quoted as saying, maybe some baby boomers will hear that and wonder what happened to those ideals. Mm. Um, so they are, this is very much Generation X flipping the finger at the part previous generations and saying it isn't all rosy, we can't all just love each other, the world isn't one big you know, happy uh, little bubble. Yeah, I mean, this, the, the song titled Territorial Pissing is just um, in your face. A lot of attitude there. And um, with this song, I found it to be different from other songs on the album. Um, maybe more, you let me know if you agree, like more traditional punk, just the speed in which the guitar is being played. Yeah, real, real short, drums. real fast. I liked it. I, re- I really like Territorial Pissing. I think it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, awesome it's, it's good. Um, it's a nice um, break from the rest of the album too because it lacks melody that is found on the majority of the, of the rest of the album. You know, because if it was just every song was like we said kind of a hard rock pop song it probably would have been um leaning on the more cornier side or you or as an audience member you would have been like okay i see what you guys are doing here you know and i'm sure kurt would not have appreciated that at all because i i was just going through like the research i saw that he wasn't happy with the final product of of the album because he felt that it was too slick which is funny because i'm sure in 1991 this album was probably like super raw to most people's ears but it's um it's interesting to think what um sound he was really really going for and what they could accomplish if it wasn't maybe a producer wasn't involved or maybe a record label didn't have their say into the final product they they followed up with drain you which is just another great song i don't even have anything for drain you i said my my notes are fuck man this album slaps <laughs> drain you is a great song coming after territorial pissings it was wonderful um i, I like they, they keep up the pace so like it just hit 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 um they haven't made a misstep really um, which is very impressive for a band that is pretty much the same flavor or tempo the whole way through. It's time in Screamadelica, after, I don't know, a few hours have passed of these middle tracks, then you get to something that happens when you're on drugs, which is the come down, or all that serotonin starts leaving your body, I assume, 
and you start feeling real sad all of a sudden, which is what I think they're going for on the tail end of this album. No points for creativity for some of these songs, because one of the songs is literally called I'm Coming Down. These are songs that are much less dancey, much more traditional, sort of ballady, rocky, and much more soft-spoken. There's more singing than in most of the other songs on the album, and they are counterpoints to the other songs at the start of the album. So you had a song at the start of the album called Moving On Up, and now you have one called I'm Coming Down. Yeah. So this is like, it's like a up and down. The whole album is is a ride, is a journey. This is the hangover, basically. This is the next morning you wake up with a killer hangover, and it brings you right back down to earth. I mean, I'm Coming Down is obviously, I, it's obviously about drugs. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, because there's only two scenarios in which you're, you're saying the phrase, I'm coming down. You know, like... Um, you're on a lift. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're caught, yeah, that or you're meeting your Uber <laughs> driver <laughs> in a couple of seconds. So, um, yeah, it's a good one. I do, do like this one a lot. It does capture the feel of a buzz wearing off because it's so chilled and so lazy. Um, and I thought it was great use of a sax. I always love a good saxophone. And... Um, and the drums as well. I think it's a it's a perfect concoction to uh, convey what it's uh, what the feeling that is trying to uh, put out there. Do you remember our Smash Mouth episode? Yes. How can I forget? I can't. I I, I have nightmares about that episode nightly. And I, I believe the term you used for some what you would call their music is lounge lizard music. Yes. Yes. Which is exactly what Nirvana do on the next track. Uh, Lounge Act. It's a song about Bikini Kill's Toby Vale, Kurt's girlfriend for most of the time he was making, never mind, um, before he hooked up with Courtney Love, which I'm sure he doesn't regret. Oh, yeah. The musical backing, it even starts with the little bass solo by Chris Novoselic, and they thought it sounded like lounge music, which it it does. It absolutely does. Um, And it's a little bit of... This is what Smash Mouth wishes they were. They wish their lounge music sounded this good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But unfortunately, it sounds like Smash Mouth, so... (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and then I would say the first real weak song of the album, Stay Away. It's not bad, but it's just compared to the other hits, I thought this was a weak song. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I mean, the song's about people and people doing things blindly because they're asked to do them. I do like this song. I thought it was one of the harder tracks on the album, different from something like Lithium or It Smells Like Teen Spirit because it doesn't have those melodies or... Um, those uh, uh, what's the word um, memorable choruses, but um, I thought the messaging was was really good, and I think he gets his uh, point across. Like lyrically, I get it. It's just it wasn't doing anything for me musically. And then hey, we we pass one song that I thought was a little bit weak, and then we're right back because on, on a plane we back baby, good mu- mm. good song, great song. On a plane, and then something in the way, which is quite a quite a finale, and there's a hidden track as well, but something in the way. Very interestingly, the lyric start, you know, underneath the bridge, Tarp has sprung a leak, and he's talking about being homeless and living under a bridge and shooting up heroin. Yeah. Very similar to another song by Red Hot Chili Peppers, which came out on the exact same day. Blood under the Bridge, magic. right? Yeah, Under the Bridge came out yeah. on the exact same day, and they both have a song lyric that, that features that. Um I guess that's just the scene at the time, but... Yeah, yeah that's exactly what I was going to say. Living in 1991, living under a bridge was just the thing that everyone did back then. You just watch <laughs> you watch an episode of Seinfeld, you know, you'll get your Starbucks coffee before it, it was actually Starbucks, and you go to your um, 
bridge area and just kind of hang out and uh, maybe play some pogs with uh, some other bridge dwellers. And then shoot up. Yes, exactly. You have to shoot up. Yeah, quite quite a funny little end to the album. And then Screamadelica ends uh, in, a, in a sort of, they go back to the dance songs, Higher Than the Sun Again. They call it a dub symphony in two parts. So it's a sort of a, a refrain or a reprisal. And Shine Like Stars, they, they end it on like sort of sweet notes um that are that are more dancey dancey tracks yeah yeah definitely one thing i wanted to say about uh, uh something in the way excuse me is that uh, i mean I, I i just i remember when this song came out back in the day and it was always this um urban legend that uh Kurt, you know, he he was uh, he was living under literally living under a bridge and stuff, and that's what inspired him to write the song. But then going like through notes and watching stuff, and I, I just saw a bunch of people kind of uh, refute that story that he never was really you know like a, a homeless person like that. It was just a move that he was just trying to um, to convey. So I mean, that's what he that's what he said. I mean, I said it earlier. All these journalists trying to like read into his lyrics or whatever, like, oh, maybe he did live under a bridge and stuff. He's like, no, like I'm just I'm I'm an artist. I'm just making up this thing that sounds good or or fits the mood to the music. And you guys are reading into it like psychoanalysts or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's super interesting because uh, I mean, Cobain is like that typical like torture artist. Like he just puts out this music and even sometimes really nonsensical lyrics, and people just dissect it and put him on a pedestal in which i don't think well obviously he didn't want to be on but it's 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 super interesting to me because it's like bro it's it also is the music industry the music business you know and i mean um the music business is notoriously famous for being shallow and and all these negative attributes that you could put on you know that maybe someone with real artistic merit is not necessarily looking for um so it's that but in regards to the song uh i i thought the the cello at the end or well it's all throughout the song actually i thought it was i thought it was a great great addition because it just provides the song a very mournful eeriness to the track all the way through which i which i thought was uh pretty gangster but and also did you did you know That's the this... first time cello has ever been described as gangster <laughs> oh and it might not be the last yeah that's funny <laughs> but you know this song has gotten into um come back to the forefront in popularity just recently because this song is um featured on the trailer for the upcoming superhero film the batman really yeah, yeah. and it's um you know i still haven't watched that out of really you're not really into it yeah i it looks pretty i'm not gonna lie bro it looks pretty dope it looks pretty good so i i i recommend you should check it out but yeah this song is featured on that uh on that on that trailer and i guess it's to convey that this is a darker edgier batman you know we've never seen that we've never seen a dark edgier batman ever no no it's always so bright and colorful for the past 30 yeah years. i know exactly so with the with the um, association with that batman trailer uh this song has recently skyrocketed to um oh in top two uh number two on the u.s rock digital song sales charts so so there you go that wraps up both albums let's take it pedro to the breakdown
this was a very information-heavy episode, I thought. I thought we, I covered two genres, we covered a lot of history, uh, we covered a, a sexual assault case, we covered it all. <laughs> we covered it uh, Well, this is a, these are big albums, you know? Yeah, I mean, we knew, I knew coming in this is going to be a, a nice, chunky, chonky episode. These were both very successful. Both had huge impact, um, especially in the UK for Streamadelica and across the entire planet Earth for Nevermind. Uh, why were both these albums successful? And, I mean, I was surprised that you liked Screamadelica at all, but uh, pleasantly surprised. What, what's your take on both these albums? Uh, yeah, I mean, with uh, with uh, Nirvana's Nevermind, I think it was just ushering in the grunge era. Um, I think the record label Sub Pop uh, is a hell of a marketer, so they were able to uh, put it to another level and present it in, like, something new. Um so that's one aspect of it um but the album is it's a good album it's hard rock it's hard as hell but it has clever lyrics and really memorable and catchy melodies and um i think that is a strong strong aspect of the album and why it was super successful all the other stuff as far as it becoming you know quote unquote one of the greatest albums a classic rock album and the legacy that it has generated um, is all a tribute to the aforementioned reasons. And then, of course, the way Kurt's stories, you know, his end um, adds to the notoriety of, uh, of the music as well. So, as, and as far as uh, Primal Scream's album, um, I, I, for me personally, like I said, I, I thought it was the antithesis of um, Nevermind and what was going on in the US. And listen, I've met enough British people. And, and no offense to all our British listeners, I know British people always want to do something different from the U.S. You know what I mean? Like they always want to be different. So it's I think it's just that. But it's it's the rise of ecstasy culture, club culture. Um, and this is the perfect um, soundtrack or backdrop for for that uh, for that vibe and that scene that's going on. So I think that's uh, a tribute to that success there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's funny you, you say the UK always wants to do something different to the US, even though house music is was invented in the US. So they're just you know they're, they're you know it's from Chicago, so they're just taking that and putting their own spin on it. This is a very it's almost like a secret club you're in. Like if you know, you know. That's that's the meme, right? If you've taken drugs or you've been on a trip like this or, or done LSD or something like that, then you will understand this album in a in your own special way, maybe more than someone uh, who's just listening to it stone sober. And I think it, it's cool to have albums like that. There are albums that are you have a certain experience that you will understand. Uh, whereas I think Nirvana appeals to the edgy teenager in everybody. Everyone has those emotions of like, fuck the world, I hate my life. Um, so I think everyone can relate to it a lot more. I still think both these are wonderful mm-hmm. albums. We like to characterize maybe the early 90s as grunge and everything was sad and miserable. But it's nice to see that there were albums on both ends of the spectrum. You have this bright, sunny, lush album that you can dance along to. I can put it on at a party and scream a delica. And you also have this wonderful album in Nevermind that is so powerful, so raw, so gritty. Even if Kurt Cobain thinks it's too slick and Motley Crue-esque now, uh, I still think it's a wonderful thing. Both of these albums appeal to different people. 
and different ends of the spectrum. I don't think Nirvana fans were particularly Primal Scream fans and vice versa, but uh, both wonderful albums and uh, a good way to come back from our break because it was a wonderful listen to both of these personally. Yeah. Pedro, pick a song. What do you got for me? Yeah, uh, off, the, off the Primal Scream record, um, I'm going to do, hmm, do uh, Higher Than The Sun. I thought it was a standout track super psychedelic we mentioned that the song is i mean excuse me the the whole album is geared toward a crowd of people dancing and doing drugs and all that and i think this is a, a great track for um that type of crowd so it's that and then off of uh nirvana's album i'm going to you know what i'm gonna do uh something in the way is what i'm gonna choose I mean, it's so easy to pick something like Smells Like Teen Spirit, Lithium, and all the other tracks that you heard a million times, um, whereas something in the way people have heard that a lot, but I think it's um, a, a forgotten gem, and I think it's a lot um, – it's not as harder as the other songs, and um, I don't know. I just I, – I just re- this whole week, I've been re- – it's been stuck in my head, and I've really, really been digging it and having a better appreciation for it. You took mine from Primal Scream, but I'm going to go – Oh, really? With, Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. I'm going to go with uh, Moving On Up just because it's been in my head, and I think it's a real positive song, very 60s, very Rolling Stones. I'm moving on up. Now it's been in my head uh, all week and yeah just really positive and it's the start of the journey the start of the night you put it on and things are starting to build and you're having a few drinks Um, it really it fits that theme so well as for Nirvana I'm gonna go with Territorial Pissings because I hadn't heard it in 15 years two minutes short sweet ironic really biting satire coming after Polly Um, I think it's it's such a wonderful song and on a wonderful album Um, that does it for us man another week in the pocket, yes. out of sight. Yes. And we'll, we will be back next week. Yes, we shall. See everyone then. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.